All right. Um, last week, I uh, I shared some things <clears throat> that were, were foundational, I think, and 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 tried to kind of get us at least looking in the right direction, pointed in the right direction. Um, just to kind of review for a minute or two, I asked the question, "What is Christianity?" Uh, it's a it's a question I think we we often take take for granted, um, assume ourselves to be more in command of that question than than, than oftentimes we are, and and uh, so we were talking about how Christianity is nothing more or less than the life of Christ, the life of Christ in you in in you His body. And and therefore, Christianity is not a religion. It's not doctrines and beliefs and ways to live and ways to act to serve God. Christianity is Christ living in you. Um, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter two. It's a it's it's an awesome verse. Paul says, "In in whom he's speaking of Christ. In Christ, the whole building being." fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. That's Paul's understanding of Christianity. We are a, a, a living habitation, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So when we're talking about Christianity at the outset, what we're talking about is the life of God given to, to, to souls, given to the souls of, of, of humanity. We're talking about a life that is, first of all, given to you, a life that is then revealed in you and in that way formed in you, and and the life that ultimately is, is glorified in you. And I know, and we all know, that people have made Christianity into many other things, but, but God has only ever had one view. He's only ever had one view of Israel, uh, and we'll talk more about that. But that's what Israel is. Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son. Israel is the body of my son, is a corporate people. And, uh, and, and that was in the, the days of type and shadow in the Old Covenant. And now we've come into the, the spirit and truth of all that God ever pointed to in the in Old Covenant Israel. Christianity is one new man, Christ all and in all. That's... That's Christianity. But then we talked about, you know, having established that Christianity is life, that life specifically being the life of Christ. What what is life? It's easy to, to, for us to agree with a, uh, the, the statement that Christianity is life and still have absolutely no idea what that means or what, what that's referring to or why it's significant. So we spent a little bit of time last week um, just discussing how life is something that we do not have by nature. Life is something that actually is totally foreign to the natural man. What, what God calls life, you know, Jesus, as we mentioned, looked right into the eyes of, of, of human beings, Jews whose hearts were beating and who were moving around planet Earth, and he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. And so life is something that is foreign to us, we have biological life. We have we have you know some kind of animated existence, but life is something that is exclusive to God. Life is something that we only gain by being born from above. 
and it is something that we only know. Let me just say it like this. Gaining life does not mean that you know the life that you have gained. That's much of our problem right there. And, and knowing life happens in us when we are shown, when we are taught that life by the Spirit. Who is that life? The Spirit of Truth. And so life is, in its substance, and in its reality, what is it? It's the actual nature of God. It's the nature and character and substance and activity and reality of God himself. That's what life is. God is life. And, 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 and that life, involved in that life are the mind of God and the understanding of God and his view and his way and his righteousness and his will and all these facets that are part of that life. But for us to have life, in a nutshell, is for us to participate in God himself. Not to, not to obviously become God, but to become a partaker of God. Peter says it, Peter says it uh, like this, that we have become partakers of the divine nature. And so to know life is to begin to experience God's revelation of himself through the spirit that he has given and apart from that, no matter what so-called Christian thing we do, no matter what Christian thing we say or we teach or we learn, apart from it having life as its source and as its reality and as its substance, it's nothing. It's, it's nothing. And, and for that reason, Jesus said that very same thing. Apart from me, I am the branch, you're, I mean, I'm the vine, you're the branches, abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. In other words, apart from me being the life, being the reality that is behind all that you see and all that you know and all that you do, then it's just you seeing. And it's you knowing and it's you doing whatever is right in your eyes. And, and, and you know, I've been uh, reading uh, about some of this in, in our, we have a class we're doing on uh, types and shadows in the Old Testament, but what you'll bump into in the, Old, in the Old Testament is that doing what is right, Israel doing what is, what is right in their eyes is the source of their constant contrariness to God. And you're going to find that that God defines the the problem with Israel in a number in Deuteronomy and Judges and, and, and a number of the prophets as a people who are doing what is right in their eyes. And uh, and that's just a nicer way to say a people refusing to do and be what is real in God's eyes. So for us, for you and I, that is true because we are his body. He's the head, he's the mind, he's the eyes, he's the will, and apart from him, you can't, you can't do anything. You can do nothing. You know, maybe you could say it, a more clear way to say that is apart from him, you can do a whole lot of things that amount to nothing. I sometimes say it like this, nothing of Christ's will is accomplished without Christ's mind working in Christ's body. 
and and, uh, and and people people often think that sounds a bit extreme, and yet nobody would think it, it sounds extreme if we were talking about your body, about your natural body. And I'll imagine for a minute that you're a, uh, you're, you're paralyzed from the uh, from the neck down. You're a, what is that quadriplegic? And uh, and I walk over to you and and I and I say, hey, you look a little frustrated. What's what's bothering you? And 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 you you answer me and you say, well, here's the problem. Nothing in my body is responding to my mind. My mind is perfectly functional, but nothing, nothing that I am and nothing that I want and nothing that I think is having any expression at all in my body. And, uh, and so I suggest to you, hey, I, I think I have a solution to that. Just, just tell me what you want. You know, do you want a Coke? Uh, do you want me to move your leg in a certain direction? Would you like me to shift your arm up a, a little bit? Uh, I'd be happy to, to do any of that. Anything that you think is good, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it for you. But then, you know, you, you say to me, uh, you know, I, I, Jason, I, I appreciate the sentiment there, but uh, honestly, nothing you do would be good if it really isn't the outworking of my mind, my life, my, my being. You moving something for me is not going to be an expression of me. And even if you dedicated yourself entirely to, to trying to do the things that you think that I want, it's still not me. It would still never be my will, my mind, my life. Well, I don't think that anyone here would think any differently about their body. So the question then is, why do we think that God is content to watch us move and serve his body with our mind, especially when he tells us in the scripture, in a number of places, that our mind is enmity with him? Why would, um, why would he be happy to have us serve him with our spiritual ideas, Especially when he tells us that his thoughts are higher than the heavens are above the earth and ours, and you know, and that we can go right on down the list of comparing what we are not to what he is. And so, my point is, the only reason that we think that way is because we don't really know another way to think. We we operate from our own life in his body because we have not allowed the Spirit of God to reveal in us the life of Christ. And oftentimes we haven't even heard, except for the innumerable passages in the Bible that, that, uh, that describe that reality, uh, somehow it, it, it comes to be something that is, is um, uh, almost a foreign idea to, to a lot of us. At least it was to me. So, Again, Christianity is Christ. Christianity is Christ living in you. And that living, that life is exclusively Christ. And that life is formed in you and that life is revealed in you. In other words, that life begins to have expression in you through you only when the the spirit of truth is given the liberty in you to teach you that life. Otherwise... Otherwise, our ignorance and darkness becomes the limit of our experience. And that's a really big deal. Our blindness, uh, our, our blindness in knowing the reality of his indwelling life 
will correspond directly with our failure to know and abide in that life. We, in other, you could say it this way. You can be born of the Spirit and still walk in the flesh. Unless the Spirit is permitted to teach us the life that is in us. You could say you, you can be born, you can have met the person of the truth, and yet still walk according to the lie. And, 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 and there, right there, almost every Christian, uh, myself included, wants to say, well then, why isn't the Spirit doing that? You know, if he wants to reveal Christ to me, well then by all means, get to it. You know, what's the hold up? But see, that's, that's, um, that's just another, I mean, the Lord's dealt with me on this in my heart. It's just another way that we uh, demonstrate our ignorance because um, this is where we don't, this is where we make it very obvious that we don't really understand the nature of the problem. The nature of the problem. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want, you know, we've said a little bit about where this hopefully is going. You know, what, what, what is life? What is Christianity? What, what is this thing supposed to be? But we're not really gonna, we're not really gonna get anywhere, um, practically speaking, if we don't understand the problem, I want to. So I want to talk about that. I I can't stress this enough. I, um, if we don't understand the nature of our situation, the nature of our nature, you could say, the nature of our problem, then there's no chance at all that we're ever going to understand the nature of God's solution. Here's a question for you to think about. How big of a Christ do you think you need? How big of a Jesus do you think you need? Do you need some sins forgiven? You know, do you need a, um, a, a ticket to a better place? How big is your comprehension of your need, is what I'm saying. Because that question will determine how far your heart wants to see the unsearchable riches of Christ. Here's the bad news. I'll give you the bad news first. The bad news is that the problem is worse than you think. The problem is worse than you can think. Because your thinking is part of the problem. But here's the good news. The solution is also beyond what you can think. In fact, it has to be shown to you. The solution is far greater and far fuller far more complete and perfect than anything that man can imagine. For this reason, Paul says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the, the heart of the natural man, the things that God has prepared, but these things have been revealed. But see, if we don't face, at the beginning of this, if we don't face what we are, if we don't, face, if we don't look right straight into the, into the eyes of the problem, then we're, then we're just not going to get very far at all. If we, don't, if we don't completely abandon any idea of saving ourselves or, or of using our minds in this thing or adjusting our nature to somehow make it uh, fixable. In other words, if we don't, 
totally come to an agreement with God in regards to his complete and total rejection of the Adamic man, then somewhere along the line in this journey, we're going to turn back. And I've seen that happen a lot of times with a lot of folks. And, um, and that's a very sad, sad thing. God has totally rejected and judged the Adamic man. You know, and those words, again, those words, as words, those words are easy to agree with. I mean, you can look at, you can look at just a Bible verse of, you know, God crucifying the old man or, or whatever. Uh, as, as words, it's easy to, to say yes to that. But there are an innumerable number of ways why we refuse to let the Lord show us what that really means. We think we want to know the truth. But the truth begins here. The truth begins with seeing what you are not. That's where learning starts. We have to see what the natural man is. We have to see how contrary to God we are by nature. We have to. Jesus says in words that we don't usually preach, Jesus says we have to hate our lives in order to find his. And, and he's not, and nor am I, talking about low self-esteem. He's not talking about self-condemnation. He's talking about a God-given realization of what Adam is and a deep recognition and agreement with the fact that the cross must be an end to us of what we are by nature. And then to us a gift of another life that is altogether and in every way other than what we are by nature and what we do and how we think and what we want. It's contrary to us. Some of you I know uh, from talking to you have listened to uh, a little of my teaching that I, uh, that I have, have done about the lie. I'm talking about the lie that uh, Adam and Eve believed in the garden. And I'm not going to go through all of that. I'm not going to start down, uh, down that path very far at least tonight. There's, uh, maybe, maybe sometime we'll work through some of that material because I think it's important. But, but, uh, but I want to at least present a, a, a little brief summary here of what happened in the Garden of Eden because, because that's, where the pro, that's where our problem had its beginnings. That's where everything started. That's where, you can, that's where, the, um, where, the, where the nature of Adam um, became something uh, that it still is. You know, we all know, if we've been in the church for very long at all, that Adam and, and Eve ate from the wrong tree. And we know that that was a transgression of a, of a specific command. In fact, it was, as far as I can read in there, it was the only um, prohibition that God gave them. But, but, but why did they do it? What, in other words, what was their temptation? Was it just a mistake? Were they just you know, duped? Uh, is that all that there was to it? Was it just that the fruit looked better than some of the other fruit in the garden? Was that what it is? Was it just desire? Uh, for food, I don't believe so. I don't believe that's the case. 
Why did they take it? I believe they took it because Satan offered them a lie. I, I believe that they took it because they wanted to believe something. They chose to believe something. I see. I don't believe that the heart of the problem is that it was was that they actually took the fruit and ate it. I, I believe that was the that was the uh, the outworking of the problem. I, I think that the heart of the problem is that they believed a lie that made them want to take it, to take and eat from that tree. So what what did they believe? What 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 what's this lie that Satan told told them? And and that's the that's the question that started stirring around in my head. A couple of years ago, when I was thinking about this, what kind of a lie was this? What kind of a lie could have had such an incredible effect, uh, such an incredible impact? I mean, obviously, this is more than just an intellectual agreement that we're talking about here. This is this is more than just uh, you know falling falling for a trick. It's not that kind of a lie. Because we can see we can see right off the bat that something in the, in the very constitution of these people, Adam and Eve, uh, immediately started to change upon believing the lie. Suddenly, Adam and Eve were entirely self-aware. They were totally self-consumed, self-condemned. They were aware of of themselves, their lack, their nakedness, their need, their shame. All of a sudden, uh, the perspective and and peace that they had known in, in the garden were lost. And all things of this creation were seen by them and understood and experienced by them, not according to God's perspective, but but totally and in every way with respect to self-interest. So by by consenting to this lie, man's relationship with all things started to find its identity in the awareness of self and 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 in the all-consuming obsession of of, of uh, self-preservation. Paul describes this in the very beginning of his letter to the Romans. He says, man exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And in that way, they became the center of their own story. He says they exchanged the knowledge of God for their own darkened understanding. And right away he hid, and he blamed, and he feared, and very quickly he killed. And we read that right immediately after that, God looks at the earth as, as, as this place that is filled with violence. Let me just read a couple of verses here. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man, and, and, and just so you know, Adam is the Hebrew word uh, for man. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And skip down a couple verses. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So without getting into a whole lot there, all I'm trying to show you is, is the effect of the lie. That's, that's God's perspective. It may not have been uh, Cain, Cain's perspective, but it was God's perspective. 
on the Adamic man. So again, the question I never really answered it. What is the what is the lie? What did they believe? What we can see that it has this effect. It it has it has it has the effect of of, of changing something very fundamental, something very foundational in, in, in the deepest uh, presuppositions of the human heart. It obviously had something to do with with what they understood themselves to be, who they thought they were, who God was, what God was, what was their nature of their relationship to God, and and, and I can summarize it kind of like this: the lie. The lie is this entire perspective or view of reality where man understands himself to have purpose, value, potential, wisdom, destiny, life, apart from God. That's the heart of the lie. That's what, makes, that's what made and still makes Adam tick. This is what Satan offered the first man and the first woman. You can be like God. You can know good and evil. You can have your eyes opened. You can be wise. Did God really say that? You can know better. See, we have to understand that this is bigger than a belief. This is deeper than a wrong idea. This is a, this is a world view that man accepted he drank it into himself he took it upon himself where he became the center of his own universe and man became the own his own his own lens through which he saw all things and through which he measured all things and 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 valued and appreciated everything all things are relevant to the extent that i am bettered by them all things are true to the extent that i need them to be real for me all things are good to the measure that i gain from them I believe that independent of God, I have purpose, I have relevance, I have life. What I'm saying is that the lie is so much more than than a concept that we think. It is the darkness of the fallen Adamic nature, the fallen Adamic mind that is eaten alive by self-awareness and felt need. It's not just one of our thoughts. It is the foundation for all of our thinking. It's the starting point of all that we perceive. It is a world where man is, is, is center stage. It is a world where man has imagined purpose, imagined value and life and wisdom and destiny, independent of God and independent of God's purpose. It's where we have declared our independence. Where we've imagined life that has nothing to do with the truth. And sometimes in the, in, in, in the vanity of our own imaginations, we, we try to include God in our purposes. And that's a perfect definition of religion in my mind. That's what religion is. It's our attempts to conc- include God in our own ideas and, and concepts and, and, and the way that we create God in our own image. But in fact, what we want and what we do... and what we are is naturally speaking no longer submitted to or even related to God at all by nature. Paul says it this way, we are children of wrath by nature. We have become, as Jesus says, sons of the devil. We are, again, in the words of Paul, without God and without hope in the world. We are 
those, he says, who conduct themselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Our mind is said to be enmity with God. Our will is hopelessly bent towards self and away from good. Our heart, Jeremiah says, is deceitfully wicked beyond all things. Who can understand it? Our righteousness, Isaiah says, is filthy rags. This uh, Psalm 62, verse 9. My wife was reading this to me this couple days ago. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than a vapor. Or Isaiah 40, 15. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to be burned, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now, I'm not saying these things to try to... The good news comes out of the bad news, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say these things to fill you with despair and hopelessness. And, and yet, in a way... I am. Uh, in a way, I, I guess that I, I am. There's a kind of despair that, that's good for the soul. There's a despair that is according to truth. It's a despair that realizes that our problem is beyond estimation. Our problem is not that we are, it's not that we lie, or even that we've believed a lie. Our problem is that we have become the lie that we believed. We don't struggle with darkness. We are the darkness that we struggle with. And we are going to go nowhere in our understanding or our experience of salvation if we haven't first settled that issue. Everything grows out from that beginning. The problem is, isn't, isn't something we have. The problem is something that we have become. And the lie, the lie now isn't isn't something that we need to stop believing. It's too late for that. The lie is someone who must stop living, who must stop trying to live before God. And we're going to spend a lot of time talking about how that works in us and how the cross is the solution to all of that and, 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 and why, Jesus, why Jesus said that it is knowing the truth that makes us free and what that means. But I'm just trying to now state these things very plainly. You can't find an end to our problem until you put off the man who is the problem. Our problem has only one end, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to find as we go along in these groups that everything about salvation, everything about our journey as Christians, everything about our experience of salvation, everything is entirely and, and totally concerned with and consumed with the cross because it, it, because the cross is, is the instrument by which God takes away one man and brings forth the increase of another. That's the solution. That's, that's a summary statement of the solution. That's the nature of the journey that we're on and that's what we're needing to happen in our soul. We've been brought into Christ. We've been born of His Spirit. We've been translated out of one, one kind and into another and yet we need to know the continual inward displacement of the Adamic nature that works in us through blindness. 
And we need to know the revealing of the life of Jesus Christ that begins to work in us through light, through truth, through the renewing of the mind, the revealing of the Son, the mind of Christ, the knowledge of God, the faith of the Son of God. And the scriptures are filled with that reality. The Old Testament declares it in countless types and shadows, many of which have been been on my mind recently in our fellowship on the east side. We've been talking about those things recently. The New Testament proclaims these things on every page. Every page. Paul writes, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ. He never one time mentions anything about striving to transform the old man. He speaks of the the crucifixion of that man. Knowing this, he says, that our old man was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the entire body of sin, might be done away with. And he speaks of the formation and the soul of man, of of an altogether new life. And he writes in Galatians 4.19, My little children, with whom I am in labor until Christ is formed in you. And he desires in Ephesians 3.19 that we might be filled up to the very fullness of God. And for this reason, in 2 Corinthians 5, we're, we're called a new creation. Old things having passed away, behold, the new is come. And we're told then in Ephesians 4 to put on the new man. Put off the old by the renewing of the spirit of our mind. And this has nothing to do with a person dedicating themselves to acting like Jesus. This is the actual life of God glorified in and expressed through the body of Jesus Christ, the church. So Paul writes, We who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Christ's sake so that the life of Jesus might also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Flesh never grows up to be spiritual. There's there's nothing about that in your Bible. There's nothing spiritual about you except for the Spirit. So Jesus says it's the Spirit who gives, gives life and the flesh profits nothing. And Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And yet he says that a spirit-given realization, a spirit-given revelation of the finished work of the cross, we can come to know, Romans 6, 6, and come to consider and reckon and understand ourselves, Romans 6, 11, dead to that old man and alive to God in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. 1 Corinthians six seventeen: the one who joins himself to the Lord has become one spirit. Therefore, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This is the gospel. This is the solution. Religion has given us so many different options to try to keep what God has put away, to try to keep it alive and change it. It's like someone taking garbage out to the curb and then you're bringing it right back in the house and setting it back on your shelf. These things are foundational, I realize that. They're, they're, they're basic. They're foundational to us, and yet, to me, they're still unfamiliar. I mean, the words are, the words are very familiar. I'm not, un, I'm not unfamiliar with the words. But they're unfamiliar as realities. They're getting more familiar. But I'm not just trying to quote a bunch of verses here at you tonight. I'm trying to show you that all the verses in the Bible here describe the same problem 
and they all describe the same solution. One man is the problem. Another man is the solution. And facing our own end at the cross of what we have and what we are by nature and gaining at the cross his life through resurrection is the only plan of God that he has ever had. God has had a lamb slain before the foundation of the world with this purpose in mind. And that's, that's something of what it means to know the Lord and to be conformed to his image. Paul describes, uh, I was talking about this, which is where I was, I just got back from uh, south of Columbus with a group of people and we were talking about this. How does Paul describe knowing the Lord? He describes it in a very specific way. He says, oh, I, oh that I might know him. But then he says, in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, that I might, by those means, attain to the resurrection. That's how Christ is known. Christianity without an experience of the cross is nothing. Christianity without an authentic putting off of what we are by nature and partaking of and experiencing and knowing and abiding in the very life of God. It, 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 without that, it's just a religion like any other. It's a religion that has, you know, it's a religion that has good words, good friends, good songs, good morals. It's a religion in which all of us at some point have found things to love, things to do, things to join, things to be a part of. But apart from an inward experience of the cross, it's a religion that's just as dead and lifeless as any other. So unless we are conformed to his death through the revelation of his indwelling life, what I'm trying to say is that we haven't begun to address the problem. And, and I suppose, I suppose that most of you here have, have, have seen, seen some of these things or all of these things before, but I'm just, I'm just trying to make sure that we start from the right place. If we, if we start in the wrong place, there's not a very good chance we're going to end up in the, in the right place. If we start with the wrong presuppositions, how are we going to come to the right conclusions? And, and, and the right place to start is the, is the understanding of the problem. We are the problem. The problem is not something separate from us or something that has been attached to us. The problem has to do with the deepest and realest aspects of what we have called our life. And therefore, Christianity is not an attempt to patch you up and put you back in the game. Christianity will give to you, reveal in you, form in you, and glorify in you the Son of God who is the salvation sent by the Father. So, amen. We'll stop with that tonight, and then we'll have some time of discussion.